I learned a long time ago, you don't have to be all that good. All you got to do is show up and be sober. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Hey, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Uh, I, before we get started, I just I just want to spend a, a quick second and say thank you for spending your time with us. Welcome. If uh, you've been here before and listened to the podcast before, welcome back. We're, we're glad you're here. Today we get to talk to a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine. His name's James White, and he we've played some music together. We've been on the same build together before, and I, I've actually been trying to get him on the podcast for a little while, so I'm really glad we were able to spend some time together today. He's got an interesting perspective on, on life, and he's got some interesting stories. He's a great storyteller. Uh, he, uh, he currently works uh, for the Harrison Daily Times as a reporter and has for a while, uh, but he also plays music. Uh, especially in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. He, he has a, a number of gigs that he plays there throughout the, the summer months, especially. And uh, we'll talk about that all on the podcast. So this is a little bit longer podcast. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Now, are, are you from Harrison, Arkansas originally? Yes. Well, I, I was born in the what what is now called North Arkansas Regional Medical Center, but of course was then called the Boone County Hospital. And uh, I grew up uh, in a house that my dad built. My dad finished building it, poured the sidewalk right around Thanksgiving of 61, and then I was born right before Christmas of 61. And that's just a mile north of uh, Belfont. I always like to say, you know, it's, it's kind of urban Belfont. Uh, and we had, you know, cattle and, and uh, my grandma had chickens. And, you know, so we, my, my parents grew up in the Depression. So we did everything. I mean, you know, we, in the 70s when there was the meat shortage, I didn't know what they were talking about on TV because when we wanted a roast or steak, we went down to the freezer and got one. Right. Because right. We, we raised the, get those little bull calves, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, raised them up and, and and slaughter one a year and we had meat and we had an acre that we grew potatoes on you know and stored them in the barn so you know, I was in like first when I went to first grade is when I realized that milk came in paper cartons because <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought you had to go over to the barn and squeeze on them other things yeah so <laughs> you know? you kind of, I think today they call the uh, people uh, that do that homesteaders it, it's kind of yeah it's kind of yeah. like that because of the well Bolin Hill Road is up here and uh, my my grandpa Bolin uh, bought that place in the, uh, like the 30s. He bought 80 acres out there. And, and uh, my dad bought, originally bought 40 acres of it uh, after they, they moved back here from Kansas City when he went off to make his fortune and uh, didn't make his fortune but realized he didn't want to live in Kansas City anymore because he was born and raised in the flats in between Sulphur Mountain and Boat Mountain out here, you know. Right. Uh, so that's it's called Bolin Hill Road because because my, of my grandpa Bolin. So and, you've uh, got a lot of history around here. Uh, yeah, I think I mean, the, there's a guy named John Woody uh, who is going to be my fourth or fifth great grandpa. And uh, he is is buried out at the White, White Church Cemetery. And he moved in here about 
five and uh, actually was kind of a kind of a circuit riding sort of guy not not a preacher he just go around and he went over and he helped uh, the people build in Fayetteville you know he helped them mm-hmm. get that going uh, his his dad was in uh, the war 1812 and his dad uh, was in the Revolutionary War and uh, so yeah I've got I'm, I'm probably related to if if <laughs> given given the limited population base that there <laughs> is here if if you got family that's been around here for oh let's say a hundred years we're, we're probably cousins <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> and and that's why you you may want to date somebody who is doesn't live here, here. Yeah. Yeah. that's what i did i went out of state for sure so, so well how was uh how was school for you like you know um these days uh, you know school's very different than it was when i was in school mm-hmm. or when you were in school uh so how, what was that like what was what was you know your 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 grade school and high school experience like the in this area i, I went to school at valley springs and uh, i spent 24 years there it wasn't quite 24 but that's what it felt like <laughs> my graduating class was 43 people okay mm-hmm. i mean there are some lecture classes now that have more people in them than that yeah 43 people and so the the classes were small uh sometimes we'd have you know first and second grade in the same class and the same teacher would go over the first grade lessons here and then she'd go over and do the second grade lessons over here you had six grades up here on the hill and then the tradition was you've gone through those six grades so you go down where it's seven through twelve and of course no school administrator <laughs> wants to have seventh grade girls and senior boys of course you know not, yeah. in in the same building even though you know you, you I, I, i've heard uh, as you know watching the the crime thing i i see uh, these these guys who are you know chasing after you know 14 year old girls and they're seniors and they're dating a 14 year old girl you know what my my friends if i had been doing that as a senior mm-hmm. and i'm dating a 14 year old i would still be hearing about that 40 years ago is when we graduated if the 40 year reunion comes up and those friends were there they would say, "Yeah, I remember that fourteen-year-old girl you were dating. <laughs> now, now it's kind of like a conquest or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's but we had now, we yeah. had this superintendent. Uh, he was a legend. His name was J.D. Barnett Jr. Mm-hmm. And he was well known for cutting red tape. Uh, and of course, this was at a time when that could be done. He would never be able to survive in today's educational environment. But uh, he would come in for a school board meeting the way I heard it, and he'd hand out contracts and say, "Boys and." you to sign these and they just sign them and you know wow and and sometimes if 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 a a kid was over here acting a fool and he's outside he just take off his belt and start wailing on him right there i mean get his he's doing you know hands on the the side of the the school building and he's just wailing on him with the belt and and if you walk past and said something to that guy like "Ah, way to go you were on the wall next to him Mm -hmm. and getting that i understand you know i went to valley Springs just for one year uh, and and they were still giving out paddlings uh, when I was going mm-hmm. to school I, I don't I don't think they do that now um, at least not in public schools but yeah. for sure so did, did you, you know you know bullying is a big thing these days uh, a big challenge was what was, did you experience anything like that in school or how was it? oh yeah did, oh, oh yeah of course <laughs> seventh grade boys being seventh grade boys one will find oneself hanging on a bulletin board if you you pick on uh, one of the sophomores and start making fun of him. They will do that, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it was like you learned not to do that anymore, <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? And and so I, I guess it's kind of a you know behavior modification of some kind. 
mm-hmm. you know, because you know, I got a whipping one time from Peggy Savage in the sixth grade. And uh, I made the mistake of going home and, and saying something about it. Because for, for one thing, I, I was acting like a sixth grade boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had the choice of either missing three recesses or taking three licks. I sized up Peggy Savage and said, I'll take the licks. Well, I get up there. And, and at that point, they, they did this in front of the class. Mm-hmm. You know, there was we weren't going out in the hallway or to the principal's office and there's a box of Kleenex here. the Kleenex. Right. Okay. It was good, yeah. And uh, so here's my friends sitting over in this corner over here. They're watching me. So I bend over and I'm just tough as can be and she hit me that first time and it lit me up. Mm. I underestimated Peggy Savage's arm. <laughs> and uh, but, but then again, it taught me a lesson. I didn't do anything like that, you know, mm-hmm. again in her class. So I went home and I just had offhandedly said something about that and I saw my dad stop and he goes you had a whipping at school and I said yeah it wasn't all that much he said go in there in my room and uh, so I learned not to go home and say I got a whipping at school today because (laughs) I just got another one when I got home Uh, but then I also learned that if you do get a whipping at school it's a very small community and the word is going to get around (laughs) one way or the other well when you got out of high school you know what uh, did you go to college What, what plan did you have where did you go I went to uh, what is now called College of the Ozarks. At that point, it was called School of the Ozarks. And uh, I... That's up in Branson, right? Yeah, we have uh, Point Lookout. Point Lookout, Up in that area. It has its own uh, post office. It's actually Point Lookout, Missouri. And uh, I went up there, and I just was not prepared uh, for that. That was in 1980. In 1979, uh, a friend of mine named Jeff Tennyson got me in as the MC of the Trained Animal Show at Dog Patch USA. Oh, Dog Patch. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's something I hadn't heard. I hadn't, I hadn't heard yeah. that in a long time. And uh, it was really very interesting because I, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd been, you know, I've done singing and, you know, some plays and stuff like that, but I'd never met real entertainers. This was a group of folks that they were professionals. And when I say professional, I don't mean that they were getting paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, their mentality was professional. They did the job. They did what they were supposed to do. They did their job adequately and they didn't bitch Mm. and that's you know that's that's kind of the whole lot about it right there you know a lot of people say well you know we need another this over here and some of that over there no you don't you can get by without it you'd like to have that Mm -hmm. you know but if you don't have that not to be cliche but the show must go on you know you're gonna have to do it and uh, I met a guy uh, named Dave Massey Mm -hmm. and he was a banjo player at that point Dave was also the band director at a little Rock Catholic High, and he came up here to do this summer show or summer gig, and uh, I learned so much from him. I mean, th- about being a pro, and I mean, there's a whole bunch of other people that I learned stuff. You know, like Daryl Snodgrass, uh, who is the director of radio, I think, at uh, WKNO in Memphis, mm-hmm. the NPR affiliate, and uh, Natalie Canderday and Scotty Doss, and I mean, they they were true performers and have been for all their lives. So I learned all the stuff from them, and I took the winter of 79, which was my senior year, I went and took banjo 
lessons from Sam Coff, who is something of a legend in the banjo world. Indeed, you know? yes. And uh, it, uh, Jeff Tennyson and I then, in the spring of that year, we did the weekend shows, him playing guitar and me playing banjo, and we just did these little bluegrass things, you know, as like a, a 30 the minute thing. Patch? Yeah, in, the, in, the, in this is the, the season of 1980. And that was back when Dog Patch USA was actually the big amusement park, right? I mean, that was when you had the chalets up top and the and they were they had the snow machines at that time that did the um you know for the skiing and and, and you rode the trolley down into mm-hmm. into dog patch so the, the it was tram. really yeah. really that was the, the kind of the heyday of uh of it, dog it patch. was it was uh it was the tail end of the heyday mm. all right the heyday really all through the 70s there and still still into the 80s it was a deal because the al cap family you know it was based on the uh little on abner. Al comic strip little abner mm-hmm. and the cap family was heavily involved in that mm-hmm. you know at that point i mean to the point that there were rules for what the street characters could do street characters could not pick up trash on the street because they'd be like coke cups or something like that because al cap did not want somebody taking a picture of little abner with a coke cup in his hand and go look little abner's endorsing coke uh, you know and, yeah. and i mean there are all, all kinds of rules like that and uh, anyway so we did that and i was the uh, the announcer and part-time singer in a show in the the downtown show that summer then i went to college and uh, i was not interested in it at all because by that point the entertainment bug had kind of hit me so what know. were you going to what, what did you decided to go to school for at that it point? was going to be communications okay interesting <laughs> B- believe it or not i mean mm-hmm. ever since i probably was in seventh grade i wanted to be uh, a a newspaper reporter it's incredible to believe but since you were uh, a, since you were a kid you wanted to be a newspaper yeah, reporter that's yeah. interesting okay anyway there were a couple old hippies who were well they were old to me mm-hmm. <laughs> they were really you know they were like in their their late 20s yeah, you know? it's all contextual for sure <laughs> yeah, right yeah. And uh, anyway, they were, they were hitchhiking across country, and they spent a couple of weeks on uh, on campus there. And I already had the the concept of, of ba- I mean, I already knew how to play banjo. And they they were guitar players and uh, songwriters, and and I spent a lot of time with them, learning the intricacies of the guitar and stuff. Still didn't have a guitar, mm-hmm. you know, but they taught me a lot about how those things go together. So I flunked out of that, went back to Dog Patch that next year uh, in the the summer of '81 and was a street character for that summer. Who'd you play? I played, I, I was a, a relief character. I played Lim Scrag mm-hmm. and uh, Black Roof and Available Jones. Oh, another character, something like that. But uh, did that for, for that summer. Toward the end of the summer, there was a, a uh, group of, there were seven of us that got in Natalie Canterday's, probably about a 77 Monte Carlo. You know, those cars that had the hood is about the size of my car now, mm-hmm. you know, and the back seat was ab- about the size of the hood of my car, which is <laughs> yeah. nothing, right. you know, and we went to Fort Smith one one Sunday night, and uh, uh, we auditioned for a movie called The Blue and the Gray, uh-huh. which is a Civil War uh, dramatization. Mm-hmm. Had Stacey Keach and mm-hmm. know, some other people. I'm in. familiar with it, yeah. We all went down to audition for it, and they told us that we would all, or we, we would all have walk-on parts just mm-hmm. for auditioning and we thought here we are we're gonna be stars now we've made it yeah yeah the the walk-on part 
was an extra mm-hmm. if you could be hanging around for that and work minimum wage and be in costume for 12 hours a day. Right. You know? But uh, anyway, I got hired off that audition to be a stand-in, which, of course, is where you, you where the star is going to be, and they focus the lights and the camera and, and all that stuff on you so that the star does not have to sit there under those lights. Well, it turned out that this director did not like to use stand-ins. All right, so I became a production assistant, actually an assistant production assistant, probably something like that, <laughs> right. which is where basically you walk around, you have a walkie-talkie on your hip, and when the walkie-talkie goes off and somebody goes, you know, where the, the actual assistant director says, quiet on the set, you repeat quiet on the set because they were doing all the exteriors, you know, mm-hmm. in in uh, in Arkansas. It was just a hell of an experience. Oh, I'll bet. Julia Duffy, you remember that little blonde girl that was in the Bob Newhart show? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She was on that in the movie. She had a bit part in the movie and she was on set and my God, that girl was gorgeous. So it's, it's like, you know, you get to the set and it'd be six o'clock in the morning. Everybody's having coffee and so I'm having coffee and I look over and, and she's standing there and of course she was not Julia Duffy, you know, at that point, right, you know. Right. And uh, I said, oh my God, would you marry me? And she looked at me and she, she's got a cup of coffee in her hand and she looks over at me and she goes, it's the best offer I've had all day. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned a lot on that and then I came back and a variety of things I finally came back to Harrison and uh, bought a guitar and started playing you know I would say the rest is history but hopefully it's not <laughs> so all right and now at uh, you you got a guitar and then you I, I mean there's not a lot of bars in this town especially back then right like no, no, I mean because Boone County was dry for mm-hmm. I mean Un- until 2010. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was, I had moved away before it, it, mm-hmm. it went wet. So, you know, what kind of, I mean, were, what, what kind of, did, did you have to go other places to play basically? Did you have to go up towards, you know? I didn't know enough mm-hmm. to go and play outside somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I literally was learning songs and trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do because for a while I was playing in a uh, little three piece band and we were trying to learn enough songs, you know, to mm-hmm. go and play somewhere because there was a, I don't know if you remember the bar was called Bogarts mm-hmm. which was just top of the hill above dog patch. Right. Just the god awfulest dive in the world mm-hmm. and uh, we were trying to get ourselves ready to you know we're going to go play over there and you know bands are just a pain in the butt <laughs> because you can't keep them together and you got uh, somebody goes oh, you know I, I had a drummer one time best drummer, one of the best drummers in the world named Alan Clark, called him 1L because he only had 1L in the name Allen and uh, God, he was a fantastic drummer. But if somebody came along and offered him a contract, he would go. Mm-hmm. And it always, you know, was fairly disastrous. You know, you, you just can't keep people together because they're going in different directions. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. When so, people ask me what happened to the bands that I played in, I said, I always tell them that it went the way of bands. Mm-hmm. Yep. Bands, you know, uh, and you see it everywhere. They only last for so long. They're a moment in time. Just, just mm-hmm. like a recording is a snapshot of a moment in and of itself mm-hmm. uh, you know same same sort of thing right, right. I mean yep. you've got um, you know bands they just don't stay together uh, and even the ones that stay together long term they're always doing side projects and other things and yeah. they, they have to a lot of times be contractually contra- is that did I say that right Contract, contractual yeah 
due to their contract, right. sometimes yeah. they have to do that anyway. Yeah. So, so now, um, so you were, you, you guys were, uh, were doing, so were you, I guess you were holding side jobs at the same time. Kind oh of, yeah. Kind of I, I started working at, uh, well, first I started working at, uh, what was then called mass merchandisers, mm-hmm. uh, back, back when there was such a thing as a big merchandising, you know, outfit, mm-hmm. uh, grocery stores, convenience stores, stuff like that. They didn't have to do, you know, stocking those shelves and all because you had the people from mass merchandisers would go in there. Well, I worked in the warehouse Mm -hmm. and did that for uh, roughly a year. And then in 1983, I started working at Pace Industries, which is uh, just a little slice of hell on earth. (laughs) And and I should mention here, that's actually the connection that brought us together was Pace Industries, right? right? Because you worked at Pace at the same time that my father did. Right. And then when I got into music, dad said, you know, there's this guy that I work with, his name's James White. You should really, you should really get together with him. He's, he's got mm-hmm. some really great stuff and so forth. So yeah. that, if right. you pace industry is how we actually know yep. each other. Right. But, yeah. Through your dad and all. And so, you know, I worked, worked at pace and, uh, uh, spent, oh, I don't know, from 83 until probably 89, uh, drummer who was the, my partner in, in this one band, the one that, that we actually were able to work together. He moved to Arizona. And so I was a man without a country mm-hmm. basically at that point. So I bought a four track recorder and a bass guitar and I had my electric guitar and these little chintzy keyboards, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. terrible. One, one, remember that one that, that was like a sample keyboard, you know, you could talk into it and play back <laughs> right. in different octaves, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, and I got a drum machine and it just so happened that when I bought the drum machine, there was an interview in a musician magazine that month with, uh, isn't it Stuart Copeland, who's the drummer for the police? Uh, could be. I'm not. Yeah. I don't remember. Anyway, an interview with him. And it turns out that they were starting to use drum machines in the studio. But what they were doing is they were having the drummer program right. the machine. That way they know that you cannot do 16th notes on the hi-hat and have cymbal crashes at the same time that all those 16th notes are going because it's not possible. Mm-hmm. I read that interview and I, I recorded for oh several years and wrote songs and recorded them. And uh, then I ran across a guy that, his name was Bob House. Mm-hmm. Bob House was Grammy Award winning Bob House, to be exact. Because uh, I think that may have been part of his name, you know, there toward the end. <laughs> sure. But uh, he was putting together um, a, this would have been about 89, something like that, uh, I think. Probably 89, 90 something. And uh, he was putting together a little band, or a pretty good sized band, you know, a, a comedian, just like a Branson show, mm-hmm. all right? But how the Branson shows, uh, at that point, the, the season was still, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day. Right. And uh, they, there wasn't anything going on. You know, you, if you worked in Branson, you worked your ass off. You know, you saved every penny you could. You worked two, three jobs, you know, and 12, 14, 16 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Save up all that money because you're going to be unemployed in the winter. Right. And that's what you lived on. So in those days, the summer, they couldn't go and do these these shows, you know, like the Fraternal Order of Police uh, benefits and fundraisers and stuff like that. So Bob put this band together and he was going to do all these. And we did one in Benton, one in uh, Chanute, Kansas. And I said, Bob, where is Chanute? He goes, Chanute? I don't know. (laughs) And we did one in in Nevada, Missouri. It's Nevada. Nevada. Kind of like El Dorado. No, in Arkansas, it's El Dorado. Yeah, that's that's Nevada, Missouri. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my favorite ones was uh, in Pryor, Oklahoma, uh, Pryor, 
Oklahoma, there there's like 18 trees, okay, in in Oklahoma, and none of them are in prior, okay. <laughs> we uh, I got in a car with the keyboard player who was a girl and the comedian who was a girl, and rode from the junction of 86 uh, and 65 up there, just just about four miles north of the Missouri state line, and we rode all the way to prior Oklahoma. And you know they say that men are so you know guttural and all that. Man, you have not lived until you t- listened until you've ridden in a car for four and a half hours with two girls and they're talking about real ladies' problems, talking freeze treatments and stuff like that. And I'm just in the back going, na 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 na. Anyway, we and this was this was in August. We hit Prior, Oklahoma, and I swear it was 140 degrees, and it, I kept it. It just hurt so bad. But anyway, Bob also. So he took the core of the band and we played these little bars around, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I played bass because I had a bass and I worked cheap. Uh, and, you know, there's always a need for a good bass player or uh-huh. a bass player. A bass player. That, that's all. I, that was, a, I, I have, I have purposed in my heart to tell my children to, <laughs> that if you would like to work in the music industry, mm-hmm. then what you need to do is be a bass player mm-hmm. because you will never, never be without work if you're a bass player. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm telling you, because everybody's a guitar player. Mm-hmm. Everybody you play guitar. And, you know, some of them are really, really good. And there's a whole bunch of them that are really, really good. But uh, you just don't learn. You can't compete. You right. know, uh, there, there was a guitar player in this band. And this is how I learned to play bass. All right. So uh, I, we're, we're practicing, you know, doing this show and uh, got the comedian and everybody. The whole band is there. And uh, I'm playing bass. And we did something. I did a little run, you know, to kind of fill in here and there. This old guitar player, he had moved up here from Nashville back in the, the 80s when Branson was really, really booming. Mm-hmm. And the saying in Nashville was, last one leaving Nashville for Branson, be sure and turn the lights out. <laughs> you know, Well, this guy had been a session player down there and he played uh, he's great guitar player, played uh, steel guitar as well, but you know, the one thing he, he mainly did the pedals. Mm-hmm. You know, he just pretty well left his left hand you know, in one place. Right. It's Sometimes he'd move it up here like this, but he'd just use the pedals. Mm-hmm. But sounded great, yeah. you know, and nobody knew any different. You know, the people who were out here on the dance floor, all they knew is they could hear the steel guitar. They didn't care. Right. Anyway, so I, I play this this line on the bass, and he puts the bass, uh, he puts his guitar in the stand, and he walks over to me, and he stands in front of me, and he goes, you ain't no fucking bass player. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's all that shit you're playing. And I said, I was just filling in, you know, in between chords and stuff. And he said, I'm the guitar guitar player son you play one note at a time <laughs> and that's how i learned to be a bass player it was not gonna again like i say like, like i was in high school we're not gonna go coddle you over here and go mm-hmm. if you could really not do all that playing it'd be great <laughs> you know, right. just, no it was don't do that anymore and to do it in front of everybody else with them all watching oh you know? yeah and so we did those shows and uh bob uh of course bob was a silver tongue devil mm-hmm. he could get his toe his feet into more doors really? you know we lost a lot of toenails doing that <laughs> but i mean he could he could talk his way into anything and so i just came on back home i was married and had some kids at the time still working at pace and i just put my name out there as a bass player for hire mm-hmm. and i had played all these country songs you know bob taught me all these country songs and that's what everybody else was playing anyway mm-hmm. you know and uh so i just get a call from somebody and they needed a, a bass player for that night, you know, and
and uh, it paid 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I'd go do it in a heartbeat. Right. You know? My God, how many times have I driven you know, 40 miles one way to practice with some people So twice a week so we could go and make 50 bucks on the weekend? You mm-hmm. know? That's, that's just how musicians are. They'll do anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's true in the, like, uh, even in the, in, uh, the entertainment industry. Uh, you know, that's, that's how come, uh, the, in my opinion, that's how come the, the big organizations can basically hold control over the entertainers, right? Is that there's such a plethora of people that are willing to do it for mm-hmm. nothing or mm-hmm. cut someone else's throat in the process of doing it for nothing mm-hmm. that they're able to keep the artists, you know, from really ex- being able to become what they could become in, in those situations. I mean, when you, especially if you look at something like Lead Belly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's yeah. those, those situ- the, the industries have always taken advantage of the artists. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why. If artists all said, you know what, we're not going to put up with this, then they might have a fighting chance. But, you know, that bug is so strong to get mm-hmm. out there and do it that they're like, well, if, if you won't do it, like, I mean, I'm, I am positive that entertainment folks, I, and I count myself as, as an entertainment person, Mm-hmm. Um, would cross picket lines in a heartbeat. Like I, I don't, I don't see them as union strong folks. If you know what I mean, <laughs> as a general rule. So anyway. I mean, things have gotten a little bit better over the years, but it's only because, well, in uh, this about 1991, met this guy named Bob Ramirez, mm-hmm. and he had come up here from uh, Houston. He had been, he'd brought with him his bass player. It, I mean, he was like, it was like simpatico, you know, his guy. Right. And, and they, they had played together in Houston for a long time. They had the banter back and forth, you know, for, so no dead air on stage whatsoever. Not, not ever, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, God died. I mean, he like he had a heart attack or something and just died. Wow. And they were getting ready to start going out and gigging. And one uh, L, my my old drummer, uh, he said, "Hey, I know a guy's a bass player and he can probably do all this stuff." And uh, so I went over and started playing with them. This guy Bob Ramirez, he was the best combination: rhythm guitar player, lead guitar player, lead vocalist, uh, harmony vocalist, and just all round entertainer wrapped up into one little five foot eight inch package mm-hmm. you know and uh oh we did we did great stuff and uh you know we we played at uh what was called center stage in uh, eureka springs it's uh now part of well it was the big stage mm-hmm. you know we played there one friday night we played the first set and the owner booked us for the next friday night you know from right. after the first set nice you know? and uh we played together for a while again the band's hard thing to do and so i decided i was going to try to do this this thing by myself because I've always I've always enjoyed the the concept of James Taylor and and John Prine and all those where it's you and a guitar and you're sitting there and you, you're talking to all these people and you're playing songs and all that and so uh, I went the, there's a place over there and it's it's still there it's called Chelsea's Corner mm-hmm. and uh, a woman owned it her name was Molly McGuire not kidding actually Molly McGuire uh, I called her and talked to her, I said I would really like to try to do that because at that point, what what is now the big dance floor and stage thing uh, in Chelsea's Corner, that was an outdoor patio, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I told her I wanted to, uh, I, I would like to to get booked there. This is gonna be my first thing, you know. So she had me go over to her house, and mm-hmm. it was on 
Wall Street in Eureka, and I had to sit out on her porch and play a bunch of songs. You know, so I was I, I was auditioning, you right. know, to, to do this, and uh, she liked me so much that she allowed me to play. <laughs> On the patio on Wednesday night. <laughs> so, and of course, I'm thinking, wow, you know, that's pretty good. Now it's like Wednesday night on the patio. <laughs> and, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I did that for a little while and uh, started, you know, still playing with the band a little bit, uh, but ended up uh, playing at a place called Diamond Lills. Oh, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, I you, know Diamond Lills well. Lills, Lills was the shizzle. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 90s, man. I mean, especially on Sundays mm-hmm. because Lil's had a private club license. Mm-hmm. So they could sell booze on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And the only other place in town was the Basin Park Hotel. And you go in the, the hotel up there, you're, you're probably going to, they're going to want you to eat. Mm-hmm. Lil's, uh, we got some chips in the back. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you, yeah. or, or going to have somebody with a, somebody bring a crock pot in that's got chili and some cheese that's been sitting out on the counter over here for the last four days. And uh, so everybody went to Lil's. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got, uh, I played there with the band. It's That's when, when the musicians played up on top on the of the shelf. beer cooler. Right, yeah. 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 And, and like eight foot up off the ground. And so I played up there a couple of times with the band. And I got, I, I talked, the bartender's name was Randy. And he was something of an institution, you know, in, in Eureka. Everybody knew Randy. And uh, I was able to go in there and play... Uh, from four to ten on Sundays, mm-hmm. four to ten. <laughs> that is six hours, that's bro. A long it's time. a long, grueling time, and I learned a lot of songs. Mm-hmm. That's also when I learned to play harmonica in the rack, you mm-hmm. know, the Bob Dylan thing, because it made the songs longer. Ah, good call. <laughs> and that's the only reason that I did the harmonica. <laughs> and I'm still a terrible harmonica player, but I do it just because there, you know, occasionally somebody will go, you know, that's novel i haven't seen anybody do that for a while and uh, then uh did did that for quite a while and and then in 2003 uh i had just gotten divorced and a friend of mine named homer crook was the senior class sponsor at yellville summit high school and uh they were having their banquet at and and understand that that i had tried to get up on that balcony because to me as a solo artist Mm -hmm. all right and as a working solo artist i'm not talking about you know the songwriter thing with spotlights i'm talking about going and sitting somewhere and playing music mm-hmm. and getting paid for it right that appeared to me to be mecca and i would take publicity packs in there all the time i'd take cassette tapes you know and little flyer that's got my picture on it you know for and- those of you that are listening <laughs> cassette tapes uh they they were they were kind of the the new technology from eight tracks which you probably mm-hmm. also have haven't heard of at this point, but uh, the the cassettes were actually the precursor to uh, to the CDs uh, mm-hmm. of the day. Which again, there is a possibility you might not be familiar with those either because everything streams yeah, now. Much, uh, yeah. But the back in the day, back when I started playing music, you, you did a lot of stuff with cassettes. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. right. So anyway, I just wanted yeah. to note that for the, for the audience <laughs> there that may not understand that that a cassette it, it was a little like rectangular uh, piece of plastic in tape but it was really basically a reel-to-reel that you mm-hmm. could put into a machine and then press play and uh, you would have to rewind it and fast forward it to get to where you want it in fact that's the reason I became 
how I became um, a Bob Dylan fan is that my father, when he was somewhere, I think he was in, in, in Oregon, Portland, and he was visiting his sister who had um, the Before the Flood album. The Bob Dylan Before the Flood was a live album from yeah. the year I was born, 74. And on the flip side, uh, of the, he, he recorded that onto a cassette for me. And on the flip side of that, uh, he recorded what was one of my favorites, which was Don McLean's American Pie album. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when Dad gave it to me, I didn't I didn't care about Bob Dylan. You know, I, I was in the making fun of Bob Dylan phase of my life. Um, and yeah, I had some kind of weird. <laughs> and I had never even listened to anything of his, really. And but I was still making fun of him because I was a kid and whatnot. But so what happened was, is I would listen to the Don McLean American Pie album, and I would listen to the song American Pie, and I'd rewind it over and over and over again. Well, eventually you get tired of rewinding it, and so then you just listen to the next song, which I think was Starry Starry Night. And so then I became a fan of both those songs. And what eventually happened was, is I just got tired of rewinding so many times that I eventually got to the end of that side and went, yeah, maybe I'll listen to Bob Dylan. And I flipped it over, and my life was changed forever. And if it hadn't been for a cassette tape, I'm not sure I would be a Bob Dylan fan mm-hmm. to this day. Mm-hmm. Anyway, little yeah. little bird walk there, but <laughs> nonetheless. So you're cassette- oh, all right. So uh, the uh, now it, remind us the, the mecca we're, that we're, you were talking yeah, about. The, are we talking uh, about the Crescent uh, Hotel? Uh, the Basin Park Hotel. Oh, the Basin Park. Yeah, Basin okay. Park. Right, right. And uh, at any rate, this this senior class that year was having their banquet, you know, their se- junior senior banquet in the ballroom up on the top floor of the Basin Park Hotel. And uh, I had given up even trying to, to get in there on that balcony. You know, I, I just I wasn't even going to try to do it anymore because it's just such a pain in the butt. And uh, so I uh, he hired me to go up and play that that uh, uh, that banquet. So I get up there and I'm playing. And when I get done, you know, I think I played for an hour and a half something like that you know while they were eating and then a little while after they were done and then they were getting ready to, to pull out a, a cd player and dance you know right. so I'm, I'm packing my stuff up and the food and beverage manager at the hotel at that time his name was juan krebs juan had been a bouncer at gillies in uh in houston when when it was the thing right you know right. that like t- urban cowboy that could i have this dance for the rest of my life that that's what Bob House won a Grammy for. Mm-hmm. You know, he wrote that song. So anyway, Juan comes up to me and he goes, "Hey, I kind of like you. You ever thought about playing on the balcony?" <laughs> it's like, and, and that was when you discovered irony. Yeah, yeah <laughs> among other things, it was either irony or yeah. sarcasm, and you're hoping yeah. for irony there. Yes. And uh, so I said, uh, "Yeah, little, I've, I'd considered that." I didn't say, <laughs> "No, man, I've been trying for the last eight years to get up here." You know, and he said, "I want you to come over." Uh, on uh, such and such and play lunch. I went, lunch? Oh, lunch? And he said, yeah, it's 12 to 3. Oh, 12, 12 to 3. And uh, then I found out that the dinner hours are 6 to 9, all right? So it's like th- it was the holy 2 by 4 from heaven, that epiphany that said solos get the best hours, mm-hmm. you know? Because literally, I can go over and do a double in, in Eureka, right. you know? And I'm on my way home by the time the band are starting are, are about halfway through their first set right <laughs> you know and uh, uh, so the the solo thing just makes absolute
absolute perfect sense, uh, or made absolute perfect sense. And I played uh, two or three seasons, took a season off, and now uh, hopefully getting ready for that season to start up. So when did you start doing it. your own original material? Or I mean, have you, did, mm. were you writing the entire time? Yeah, I was. I, I was doing. Uh, okay, we're going to go back to the cassette tape thing, right? Uh, I, I was playing uh, at. Uh, I think it was Chelsea's Corner, and uh, a guy came up, and I played three or four because I, you know, I wanted to play the original material. You know, I wanted to. Found out that if you're going to do that, what you got to do is you got to set that song up. You can't just play that song that nobody's heard before. You know, you you got to do up at the Crescent Hotel. I played up there for a couple of seasons too. And the guys up there said when I'd walk in, they'd go, "Ah, oh, it's James White singer songwriter night." And because uh, I I would I set those songs up and say, "I wrote this song. This is how I wrote this song," and then play it. And it gives people an idea, you know, that that they're getting ready to hear something mm-hmm. that uh, that they had never heard before, rather than hearing it and thinking it was just a terrible version of a song that they thought they had heard before at some point, you know. Sure. So so I'm playing it at I think it was Chelsea's, and this guy comes up and he's looking around and he goes, "Where's your tapes?" And uh, I said, "Tapes." And he said, "Ah, don't you have cassette tapes?" And I said, "Well, no, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about it." And he said, "You know, it's kind of stupid because I'd have bought one today." So I went, "Wow." Okay, so I come back over and, uh, you know, it's an hour's drive uh, and I'm thinking about all the way home about what I could do and, you know, I had 10 songs, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so I started, you know, getting ready to go do this. Jim Yester, who was with the association, uh, actually I think he is still with the association, mm-hmm. uh, he had moved, he was living in one of the chalets above Dogpatch. Now, and, is he was he brothers with? Yes, okay. Jerry's brother. Jerry's yeah. brother, okay, yeah. okay. I just wanted to make sure I... Yeah, and had- so... So Jim uh, was looming up. I, I met him one day at a jam session uh, when when he's playing. Uh, everybody's talking at me, mm-hmm. and I mean he's doing it real good. And I didn't know who he was, and was, I'm standing next to him playing bass, and I'm going, "Holy crap! This guy's got this thing nailed down. He gets this song." <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, and then I found out who he was and all that. So I called Jim and I go, "Jim, I need your help." And he said, "With what?" And I said, "Well, I explained to him about about going in the studio and recording." And he said, well, "What do you need my help?" for. And I said, well, man, I'm going in a studio, you know, drum tracks and bass and stuff. And I know that you know how to mix all that stuff. And he said, why in the hell would you do that? And I said, because it's the studio. You know? Right. You know? And he goes, oh, James, if, if somebody likes what you're doing enough that they want to buy a tape of you doing it, then they're probably going to want it to sound a lot like what they heard the night you were playing it. Mm-hmm. Alien concept to me. So I went, sat in the studio and I played basically live. I did a couple of overdubs uh, because I am not a one-man band. Uh, I just did did that. And I had $238 in change invested in studio time, the tapes, the labels, and the cases. Mm-hmm. Made my money back that summer. Nice. And uh, and, and so at, at that point, it's like, huh. I'm, I'm I, on I, my way. I'm, I'm, I did again. it. I did it. And so then there would be some days where I would... I would uh, be, you know, thinking I'm going to be generous. And I say, these are on sale normally for $10 today, $8. That's when I learned a real big thing. Don't do that. If they're $10, go ahead and charge $10. If you charge $8, somebody's going to come up there with the 10 and you got to make change. (laughs) 
they were coming up with the 10 anyway. The two bucks don't mean anything to them, really, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so, so I learned I learned <laughs> that lesson. It's a good lesson to learn. It, it, it is, because you can't carry enough $1 bills around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So now, oh. now to, today, uh, you are you don't work at Pace anymore. No, no. No. For roughly the last 24 years, I've been at the newspaper here in town. Aha. Uh-huh. And so how did you get into that gig? Well, I uh, was yet again, I realized back about 93 or so. Uh, no, no. They tried to kill me at Pace. And, uh, they tried I, to kill everybody at Pace. And, and they just they did re- got real, real close on this one. Went at a, right here, uh, the Tom Leslie sewed me up and there's no scar, which is fairly amazing. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I decided decided that uh, I, I was working at the Holiday Inn restaurant where I'd been playing for about three years, uh, you know, on Friday nights and Sunday for brunch. So now you were, you were waiting tables and playing there. I eventually, start, I, I eventually, after they tried to kill me, I went to Branson and got a job as a server at the Olive Garden. Mm-hmm. And I spent a, a summer up there doing that. God made money. Oh, gee, many Christmas. So, uh, there was a lot of money to be made in that, but it's a lot of hours mm-hmm. you know well they offered me a job at that holiday and down here uh or what what was then the holiday in yeah and, uh, and you know so, and when president clinton was in town he stayed at that holiday inn yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then and then they took it and changed it into something else <laughs> yeah because it, it wouldn't meet the franchise requirements anymore right. you know i mean the doors were like kind of ajar <laughs> you know <laughs> so so uh, anyway, I realized that there was no future in that. And so I went over to North Arkansas College and uh, I was going to take some computer courses, but I wanted to take uh, a writing course because I've also always, I've been writing, you know, stuff since I was 10 or 12, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so I was taking the computer classes and uh, learned, you know, a little bit of stuff here. Then I took uh, the second semester, I took the next upper uh, computer training course and I also took the upper uh, English course, you know, because that freshman comp or 101 or write, oh, write, because that's what you're going to do is write and write. Then in in that second course, the instructor, I I don't remember if she was a doctor or not, she goes, what are you doing at the restaurant? And uh, I said, well, I'm trying to make a living, you know, and uh, she goes, you know, you really need to do something with that. There's an opening down at, uh, at the newspaper. It turned out her husband husband also worked at the newspaper and there one of the old time reporters was getting ready to leave so I took one of my computer classes that day and I created uh, something that resembled a resume mm-hmm. you know and uh, acted like I was paying attention you know to what the uh, the instructor was saying but I was actually putting this together so I could go turn it in and uh, turned it into a guy named Dwayne Lair who had gone to Valley Springs a long time ago and uh, I ended up getting that job as as a general assignment reporter and uh, he later told me that one of the reasons he hired me was because he could see that I could spell and that I knew how to type and use a computer and also because I'd been at Pace for 11 years and he said anybody that has been at Pace for 11 years is bound to be dedicated to something <laughs> that, you know well, he's he's right about yeah, that and, and that, that was a time when I mean there were lots of people walking around missing fingers at Pace mm-hmm. you know yeah, so, now, so just to um, just to clarify 
clarify for the listeners here, uh, Pace Industries is an aluminum diecast factory. Yes. Uh, or at least it was at the time. I'm not mm-hmm. real familiar with it these days. I know it's gone through some changes, but, uh, you know, and so it was a really dangerous place to work. And, yes. and, and as I recall, and you know this much better than I do, you know, I just have heard the horror stories from my father. Um, it was a lot of, uh, at the time, a lot of the safety measures were always being bypassed so that production could be <laughs> beefed up and so forth. And so the safety measures. Yeah. Yeah. yeah dad, I mean, I remember dad telling me stories about how people would, you know, just tape their buttons down that, that you, you know, and, and people, and he would always come home with stories of people losing hands and fingers and being, <laughs> you know, and I think dad had a, a somebody threw a, a, a hot uh, aluminum cast at him one time, hit him and he had a burn from, I mean, just, yeah. you know. Oh, was, oh, oh yeah. I mean, to, to understand that, that aluminum die casting, you have to have liquid aluminum to do that. Liquid aluminum is really stable at 1200 degrees. At 1200 degrees, everything burns. (laughs) Water burns. Actually, it doesn't burn. It just because water in, in with those two elements, uh, yeah, with those, with those two elements, it doesn't burn when it gets into underneath 1200 degree metal, it separates into its elements and then it, they both explode. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, there, there was uh, about, oh, probably 10 or 10 years ago, something like that. I ran across one of the guys at Pace, working at Pace now. And uh, he said, hey, you want to come back to work? And I said, oh, man, I'm, I'm too old to do that. And he said, no, no, no. And he said, you, you won't have to get out and die cast anymore because I made, I made street lights and barbecue grills, right. you know, pr- primarily. And uh, he said, you don't have to get out there on the machines anymore. And I said, well, what, what are you doing? He said, you'd be in the safety division. And I said, the safety division? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> exactly. He's like, what? what, what does a safety division at Pace? And he said, things are a lot different. It, it, it ain't like it used to be. And I said, yeah, I remember the safety division when I worked there was the foreman coming along and saying, get your ass back to work and I won't whip it. Yeah. That's that's how you kept safe. Mm-hmm. You know, other than that, I mean, I had the pants blown off of me <laughs> back one night. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I just, you know, I, I know that, that, that our understanding of Pace is nothing yeah. like what the listeners are. <laughs> Right. Understanding yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, then you started working at the paper, mm-hmm. and you've been there yep. since. Um, yep. And what has that been like? Oh, it's been. Uh, it was a true learning experience, mm-hmm. you know, because I knew how to write. That's not a, not a problem. That's one of the things that I had to learn to do is that pretty much when you're writing a sentence uh, for newspaper, the last word in that sentence probably should be said because report. Reporters don't know anything. They are quoting other people. They're quoting the people who do know things. So, yes, the whole room caught on fire, the chief said. You right, know? Right. Yeah, and so that took a little while to get through it. Rather, and uh, Unless, of course, you're, you know, like the guy that fell out of the tree up here the other day. You know, I was I was there for that entire thing. So I could write that one, not from the first person, but as an actual reporter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, oh, I, I covered from probably 97 for, for about about 10 years there uh, I covered a lot of jury trials state jury trials primarily a couple of federal or few federal ones but mainly state jury trials uh, which would be you know murder trials uh, sexual abuse trials uh, some bizarre things that nobody 
<laughs> that I, I wouldn't even dare to put your listeners through because they are they were right. just so weird. But mm-hmm. the fact that they were so weird mm-hmm. was what made the story really interesting. For you sure. know, I, I did a oh, lot lot of that uh, moving you know trials that got moved from Boone County to Baxter County on a change of venue. And back in those days, we were using film, mm-hmm. you know, and get that. So I'd have to drive to Mountain Home and be there by uh, nine o'clock in the morning, and then they'd work until five o'clock, you know, on at, in in court. Drive back, go turn in my film that would be uh, processed for the following morning, and I'd go home, write the story, save it onto a floppy disk, as we were talking about off air, right? You know, save it onto a floppy disk, take it back down to work the next morning about seven, and go to the only computer that that there was because we that it wasn't computers at that point. It was a word processing thing that operated on an upper level of DOS. Right. <laughs> you know? I remember those. I remember those. I, I, yeah. And, and uh, uh, so do that, put the, the the film in there and clip the negatives, you know, as to the one, the pictures that were going to get scanned in and uh, then drive back to Mountain Home again and do it all over. And those are, you know, those trials are, are usually always a week long mm-hmm. and uh, learned a lot about the legal system and uh, the a lot of the people's perceptions of the legal system uh, because a lot of people think that it should be real easy but the thing is nothing's ever easy mm-hmm. you know if you wanted to look at this in the broader concept communism is probably in theory the best form of government that there is the problem is people are running it mm-hmm. all right so communism everyone's le- everyone's one's equal level right. Right here, everybody does this, except for the people running it, because they see a chance to get something that something else that these people down here don't have, but they're going to do it anyway. So you have the venal nature of the human being is what mucks up the entire works. Mm-hmm. You know, right? If people did what was right all the time, you wouldn't need the legal system because people say there's two sides to every story. No, there's three sides to every story. You got the plaintiff side, you got the defendant side, and you got the truth and the judge is there to figure out which side is lying the least so that he can get to the truth yeah you know and uh, I learned uh, a whole bunch of stuff and still learn stuff mm-hmm. uh, you know but the thing is I see people repeating things you know the the whole concept of if you don't know history you are bound to repeat it mm-hmm. yeah True words are never spoken. Oh, I'm with you there. And I see it happening all the time. You know, I, I see somebody come up with, with an idea. It's like, yeah, they tried that five years ago. And one of the guys that did that is in jail now, right. you know? And and so it it doesn't work that way. And, and no matter how bad you want it to work that way, mm-hmm. it won't work that way because some things are just not going to happen, mm-hmm. you know? So um, what is, there are some interesting things here So uh, that I, I want to unpack just a little bit here. Uh, I find it incredibly interesting that when we started this conversation, one of the things that you told me was that when you were a seven-year-old kid, you wanted to be a reporter. Yeah. And then you, you took this winding road, but you found a way ultimately to do what that kid wanted to do. It was serendipitous to say the least. <laughs> Maybe. You know, or, or well, I, 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 it all depends if, if you believe in destiny you know but the the thing on destiny
destiny is a lot of people think that everything is predestined. I don't believe that exactly. I believe that you come to a fork in the road every day and where you turn that day can change whatever your destiny is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's like some people say, well, if I step out in front of this truck, if it's my day to die, I'm going to die. And I'm like, well, if you step out in front of that truck <laughs> it and it's not your day, <laughs> it's not your day to die, then you're just going to get hurt real bad. You know, and you're going to be in the hospital for like three months and then two or three more months at the nursing home in rehab. So why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally with you on that. Uh, in in I've never I don't think I've ever believed in predestination or destiny uh, as a finite thing. But I I, I I probably believe in it as in a roundabout sort of ways that we we find whatever destiny we really want uh, in in some ways. I honestly believe that you know some of the challenges that we see these days uh, are where we have been separated from that child that we were. You know when you, when we're kids, right? You know everything's amazing. I have a, I have a four-year-old and everything is enthusiastic and amazing and fun and you know and then we send our kids to school and and just rip that out of them right but what's fun to listen to in your story is that you found a way even if you want to call it you know serendipitous but you kept that piece of that child with you all through your life and then when the opportunity arose you were like yeah I'm gonna do that and then you've been doing it and it's very similar to what you've done in music too you know you got the entertainment bug and you played around and you got better at your craft you did things uh messy until you didn't do them messy right mm-hmm. and oh yeah <laughs> right i mean that's one of the things and that's one of the reasons why this podcast exists is because i want people to understand that nobody comes out of the gate perfect nobody comes out you know being lady gaga right uh, she had learned too right she has mm-hmm. her challenges too just like you did i mean that's a great story about about the bass right because you thought you were a bass player Right. You're I'm a bass player and yeah, so forth, yeah. you know, and then you, you found out otherwise. But here's the great thing is you didn't let that stop you anywhere along the way. Right. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the, the great thing about listening to, you know, to your story uh, today is that we can see the progression of I have dreams. I have things I wanted to do. And now if we take a, a moment and look back, we can see that I kind of wound my way to where I wanted to go. I found where I wanted to, you know, where I wanted to be to, to some degree. Right. To, mm-hmm to find some purpose from where you were. And so those those are the things that um, that we like to highlight on the show is that, hey, look, even though he, he wasn't a great bass player, uh, even though he didn't own a guitar for a long time, even though he wanted to be a newspaper guy, he just kind of pressed on. And as he pressed on, mm-hmm. what he ended up doing was fulfilling what he wanted to do ultimately in a professional manner, right? And, you know, granted, I, I think every entertainer has always wanted to have the bright lights and the big show and all that because you know that's very enticing but there's something to be said for finding the purpose of what that art is for and when when you can share that art with people one-on-one and it means something or in a small venue uh, that can be so much more powerful than you know a, a big arena concert and the lives that you change and influence along the way um, you know that that can be amazing I'll, I'll tell you a story I don't know if you know who Matthew Ryan is um, he's a uh, he's a a singer-songwriter 
Um, in fact, um, I love his music. He's, he's really great. But when I first got married, uh, I took my wife to see him and we, he played the continental club down in Austin, Texas on the university of uh, Texas campus, small room, 150 people max. And it was not maxed out. Uh, there was probably about a hundred people right in, in, in the room total. Uh, and John D Graham opened for him. And this was my wife's first experience in that type of intimate musical atmosphere. So we, we watched the show, you know, it, it was like I said, small. So, you know, it, it was barely a stage. Um, and after the show was over, Matthew said, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to turn all the musical equipment off here. I'm going to grab my acoustic guitar and I'm going to come down there in the middle of you guys. And I will play songs that you shout out until you stop shouting out songs. And he did for another hour or so. He just played his songs that we said, we want to hear this. We want to hear this. And he did it right there amongst us. It was almost like, like we had circled around him for, for him to play. And that had such a profound um, impact on my wife because she had never, ever experienced anything like that at all. And to this day, uh, it's one of my favorite concerts ever because you get to connect with somebody. Uh, and, and so even if we don't make it in the Lady Gaga style or, or you know, it's, it's not Beyonce or Bust to quote Kathy Heller. It, it is, I make art and art reaches people and it helps us connect. Um, there was, uh, there was something you said earlier too, that, um, that I, that I thought was, was really, um, really pretty brilliant that you figured out, which was when you started talking about introducing your songs, because the thing is, is that all marketing, and I don't know how many people know this, but all marketing is storytelling in one way or another. Yeah. And, I, and yeah, right. Yeah, probably. And so, yeah. um, definitely according to like a Seth Godin. And so it's the stories you tell that engages people. And so, you know, in a very business sort of sense here, you're selling your songs, right? Uh, and you, how are you selling those songs? By telling the story. And so you early on, pretty early on, you kind of figured out that for me to sell my, my original songs, I have to tell the story behind them because that's what people are really interested in is the story. That's how you were marketing this, that, and the other thing, right? I mean, uh, you can hear a song and, or, or you can see a piece of art and today we get on our phone and we Google, Hey, tell me more about this. I mean, how many of us do? I mean, everybody does that, right? Mm -hmm. I see something interesting on TV. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Let me Google that. Let me, no, let me, let my me, God, yes. right. <laughs> so it's the stories in, in the reason the stories are so important is because that's how we connect their oral traditions lived for so many, 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 many years before we got into, uh, you know, documenting everything. And so that's how we connect as people. And so that's one of the, one of the cool things from from your story is that you didn't give up on, on any of this. I mean, look at all the different things that you did, right? You waited tables, <laughs> right? You worked at Pace Industries. I mean, my God, right? Uh, you know, you in and you didn't give up. You just kept going. You just kept moving along. And so, you know, you're you're the definition of plain ordinary dragon. Well, okay. If uh, you know, you'll hear um, that that thing where where people say, "Well, I, I can't live without you," or I, "I couldn't live without this." Is amazing. What the human body will do, because it will keep living even if you don't have that, mm -hmm. you know. And and it, it is it is a it makes you sad and it, it will hurt your feelings. But the body goes on, you know, un, until you wear the damn thing out. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, you, you were talking about the Matthew Ryan concert for about three seasons. I played up at uh, the Crescent Hotel, uh, doing I do the Crescent and the Basin Park both. And uh, the the Crescent Hotel was uh, it was an eight to eleven, you know, at night thing. Uh, so I, I, I go up there and I really, I really don't like having 
having to use amplifiers and stuff like that. I mean, now these days, I'm kind of, uh, I enjoy using that my little looper pedal mm -hmm. just so I can play lead guitar on top of it. So I like to have an amp. But another thing that I also want to do is I want to make sure that I can reproduce that basic sound without anything. So if the power goes out, I can still do what I'm what mm -hmm. I need to do. So I would go out on the balcony at the Crescent Hotel where they would not allow amplification. All right, and I'd go out there and I'd sit out there with my harmonicas and my uh, guitar and a book, you know, and I'd just sit out there in the middle of that crowd and just rap at them, and they'd rap back at me, and I'd play requests. And of course, they weren't requesting my songs like they were with Matthew Ryan. Mm -hmm. They're requesting everything. Uh, I mean, Jim Croce's still as popular now, you know. Well, not as popular now as he was, but it's still very popular. And that's one of my favorite things to have ever done is just to sit right there where I've got somebody literally at the table this far away where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And to be able to do that and have them look over and not even clap or anything and go, thank you. You know, and of course, sometimes they thank you financially. <laughs> and those those are when, when you get both. Yeah, that's that's the winner there, right? <laughs> and and, and you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, the glitz and the glamour and the glory and stuff. All right. Lady Gaga, she's got the glitz and the glamour and all that. She also got a set of pipes on her. I, when I saw her on that Super Bowl halftime show, I, I didn't know. I mean, I'd heard about her and it was the meat dress and stuff like that. Saw her on that halftime show and it's like, holy crap. <laughs> Look at this girl. My God, where has she she been, you know, because she came out and she whooped everybody's ass and like this too, where she got her fists going and she knew that she was whipping everybody's ass. Yeah. But as far as the glitz and the glamour and the fame and all that, if, if you, if you have ever been somewhere where someone you don't know knows your name, it's a weird feeling, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, someone you have never met before, but they, they knew you, they, they know that you do something something over here sure. and they just say hey James can you do this and you go that's that's kind of uh, kind of not not really unpleasant but you know uh, it, it makes going to Walmart a little bit different you know <laughs> sure Bill Murray years ago when when the whole Saturday Night Live thing was going and then Ghostbusters which <laughs> that Ghostbusters first one it was like they pretty much turned the camera on you know and <laughs> yeah and let Bill Murray riff you know right uh he he was in an interview and of course when i was at dog patch we were all the young entertainers who wanted to be rich and famous mm -hmm. that that was the whole thing being rich and famous bill murray said for all you kids out there who want to be rich and famous get rich first and see if that's not enough yeah that's a great way to play oh it. oh oh i that i read that and it was like yeah yeah okay i, I don't need that i just need to be rich <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, let me ask you this, and we'll we'll wind it up here. I want to be uh, cognizant of your time. Um, but what are there any uh, any I guess mm, lessons learned from you know from your journey that um, would be good?
good to pass on? Like, you know, or have there been any challenges or have there been, I don't know, devastations or things that where you've learned, you know, I don't know, to how to come out on the other side or, or is there anything like that that, that that comes to mind that you'd like to share? And if not, that's fine too. Well, uh, you know, of course, I, uh, I watched both my parents die basically because uh, they were sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, one thing that, that I kind of learned on that is that, you know, uh, death is, is sometimes a blessing when life hurts. You know, uh, it, it really is. And that, that sounds cold and callous to say because I'm on this side of it, you know. But another thing that I've learned is don't be afraid to play Freebird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you see these people, they, they go, ah, free bird. You, know, they, 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 you hear it all the time. Free bird. Well, by God, you know what? <laughs> you, you just watch this. Because I got, I, got I got me a cover of free bird that is a double time. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in C. <laughs> nice. So you be careful what you ask for. But uh, the uh, you know I, I see these bands go Freebird and people they they go oh Freebird like what you've played Freebird so many times in your career that you don't want to play it again, right? And then and then half the time you'll find out they don't even know how to play it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That uh, you know, I always make a joke. If there's something you want to hear, let me know. You can yell it out at me, or you know, come whisper it in my ear, or write it on the back of a twenty dollar bill and send that on up here. And uh, I was playing one afternoon, and I said that right on the back of a twenty dollar bill. This girl wrote "Free Bird" on the back of a ten dollar bill, so I played half of it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it, you know, you you had, you had said it uh, earlier about how you just keep going. You know, you just. Keep keep going because you you got to there every everybody is so connected in one fashion or another you know that uh, a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil and there's a hurricane Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) halfway across the globe well you know there there is something to that everything is connected Mm -hmm. and uh, that that may be something coming from an LSD trip that I took back you know in in the very early 80s mm-hmm. where where I, I decided that I know what kind of guy it was that painted that wall. <laughs> I understand him. Do you hear me? I understand that guy. And uh you know so so uh but but one way or another everything's connected and you know what is it Ellen DeGeneres says is uh be kind you know uh one one of my favorite things uh in uh, there for for uh I started reading Jay or our Tolkien, you know, when I was in sixth grade, something, you know. And uh, in, in one of the books, they're talking about uh, Saruman, the, the white wizard, and uh, Gandalf, who at that point was the gray wizard. Uh, he's talking to the hobbits, and uh, he said, uh, now we have to find out what mercy is for Saruman. And one of the hobbits said, mercy? Saruman deserves death. And Gandalf said, yes, there are many people who deserve death and yet live, but there are many people who die and deserve life. Before or you can give life. Think twice about taking it. Oh yeah. I, there, and again, you you can go back to through so many of Tolkien's uh, stuff, especially the stuff that Gandalf said. You know, uh, and so you know, you, you just don't treat people like shit. Yeah. <laughs> that that may be oversimplifying <laughs> it right there, but 
if if there's a guy who is trying to pass you while you're going down the road, why would you speed up? Why wouldn't you let him go? Because in the grand scheme of things, it means nothing. And you're probably going to pull up beside him when you hit the next little town and you're at a stoplight. Mm-hmm. You know, because you pass people all you want. You gain 30 seconds on your trip. Maybe. <laughs> you know, yeah. And so just just don't be an asshole. It's yeah, a great way to go. So talking about connections and so forth, um, where can everybody find you? Uh, well, I, I am, uh, the the season will start back up uh, in Eureka uh, in, oh, probably April or something like that because really I, I play I play as much as I can, just like we were talking about working in Branson. Play like crazy, you know, work like crazy all season long because you're going to be without, you know, work for a little while. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I try to, uh, I've I played a few things. I'm, I'm getting ready to play a, a deal for Valentine's Day at a place on the square downtown here. Do you do, uh, uh, like, do you have any social media presence or do you have a website? I, I have Is got, there... I've got some stuff that's on uh, YouTube. Uh, I think I have like two or three songs that, uh, that I've put on YouTube. Uh, I am working on uh, a new, I kind of hesitate to call it album, but, you know, for lack of a better word, I will say album. I still um, call them albums to yeah. this day. I don't care yeah. what anybody says about <laughs> CDs or whatever. For well, me, it's an album. Well, I've recorded uh, six of the songs, and uh, then I'm going to go back, because, you know, I recorded the first six songs in three hours, which I was was fairly happy with. And uh, so I'm getting ready to go back in and do the other four. Uh, and I found that being in the studio after, you know, about three hours, I'm starting to get tired, mm-hmm. and and it's not going to work as good because I'm not I'm not a, you know I'm not a road warrior or anything like that. I I will I will get tired, and when I get tired, I'm even less good than I normally am. Right. You know, I mean, I, I learned a long time ago. You don't have to be all that good. All you got to do is show up and be sober. <laughs> you know, and and no no yeah. no more than twenty songs. Sure, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Okay, so no no you don't do a website or anything like that. No okay. no. Uh, uh, I, I've got a Facebook page, of course. I mean, James L. White. Mm-hmm. But uh, I will once once this recording is done, I will be putting it on. Uh, 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 they, they've explained the process to me. I'm I'm not good with this kind of stuff. It's like I give someone a CD, mm-hmm. okay, and and they make it go where it's supposed to go. <laughs> you know, because it's like when when I open the hood of my car, okay, I might as well be opening a man's skull. Because I would know just as much about either one, right. you know. So I don't, I don't try to do that. I take it someplace where it will be fixed, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I don't go to the dentist and tell him that I've got diarrhea, <laughs> you know. This this guy knows what what you're supposed to do. Give him a little bit of money, and he will do it. Because there are other people that do that too, and that's why he does that. Right. You know. Right. And uh, uh, apparently, they they will be able to to put that out on uh, iTunes and Amazon and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any ETA for for when it's going to be fit? End of the year? Or uh, something no, like that, no. Or? It 
it, it it'll be uh, it will be by uh, pro- probably April first is oh. what what I'm shooting for because mm-hmm. I'm not doing a whole lot of overdubs. I'm going to do some overdubs uh, because of what what what, it, what I would like to do is to have somebody listen to it and go, "Hey, I'd like to record that song," mm-hmm. you know, uh, because I'm not I'm not the one you want. Look at me. I'm I'm 260 pounds. Mm. I got my hair. I, I I think sometimes when I look in the mirror, I go, "Wow, why do people keep talking about me being so gray? Look at all that brown hair." And then somebody shows me a picture, and I go, "God, where'd all that gray hair come from?" <laughs> yeah, God told me a long time ago, if you haven't made it by the time you're 35, you ain't going to. Mm. You know that if if you've made it by the time you're 35, you can just sustain that for a while. But yeah, at 58 years old, I ain't gonna make it. <laughs> but if somebody would like to record those songs mm-hmm. and do something with them, and uh, again, years and years ago, is like I'd take a song into somebody and I'd go, I'd play it for them, and they go, "Hey, what if you did this?" And I'd go, "Because it doesn't go that way. It goes like this. It's in this box mm-hmm. right here, and and this is where it stays is in this box." Right. This is the song I wrote. The song. This yes. Way. Somebody else might listen to it and go, you know, I could turn that into uh, a heavy metal song. Go ahead. Go ahead. I dare you. Just pay me. <laughs> yeah, one of my one of my favorite versions of Louie Louie was done by Black Flag, and um, it, it is unlike any version I've ever heard before, which is why I like it. So, well, you know, they asked J.J. Kale one time. They said, you know, J.J. Kale, of course, wrote all the the big hits that that Clapton's done. Everybody, a lot of people have done Clap, uh, done J.J. Kale songs. Yeah, for everybody that him, says they don't know who J.J. Kale is, yeah. you're like, well, you've heard his music. Yeah, you, you've heard. You, you, you know, yeah. you know his music. You may not know who he is. Yeah. Yeah. They asked him, uh, it's an interview. They said, uh, what's it feel like to know that so many people out there have had big hits on your songs and you've never had a hit? And he said, makes me feel terrible, except once a month when I go to the mailbox. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. All right, cool. Well, I think um, when your album comes out, you need to let me know because when that happens, uh, we'll do a giveaway. I'll get some copies from you. We'll do a giveaway on the podcast. Maybe we'll come back and do a follow up and then we can give them away then or something. Okay. Um, but uh, it's one of the things that we like to do on the podcast if we can. If somebody's putting out some art and things like that, uh, we like to go ahead and do that. Um, we've had um, we had Homer Keys on. Uh, I think you know Homer. Oh, oh yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and he uh, and he did a, a guitar strap for us, uh, and and we sent it to um, to one of our listeners. So in Canada, in fact. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll definitely do that one way or there. We'll get the logistics okay. out uh, and so forth uh, because uh, one of the things that that I feel is important is for people to connect and art is one of the best ways for that to happen I believe so um, music is one of those things where you can you can hold the guitar mm-hmm. and you can touch the guitar but it's not music then you strum the thing and it creates something that you can't touch but it's the magic part didn't have anything to do with necessarily the guitar it's the music is the magic part of the whole thing and people do you know even even if you don't know Spanish, which would be somebody like me, I can listen to some of that stuff and go, whoa. 
I do wish I could do that. And and for I mean, they could be singing. I, I'm not I'm not sure what it is they're singing. It could be like my mother killed my father, and now I'm gonna go get her. You know, <laughs> right? But it just sounds so dadgum good. <laughs> it's a universal language. Uh, I mean, music. It, it really is. I mean, there are there are some, and we see we see a lot of crossover stuff like that these days too. Uh, more so than we ever did before, anyway. Mm-hmm. Where uh, you know we we see uh, things like uh, what, what was it? Blue, Daba Dee Daba Die, uh, years ago, yeah, yeah. where it, it was based on some French tunes. Uh, Lady Gaga, uh, I don't know why we're referencing her so much in this one, other than she's an <laughs> Olympic voice, but yeah. um, you know, she, she had uh, in um, oh, one of her tunes, you know, she has a whole a whole version of French that she does in there, right? And so you see that a little bit more, and I think it makes the songs better. Like, I enjoy that. Like, it, there's something special about that particular piece. So I, I definitely can can hear what you're saying mm. for sure. Well, thank you for spending your time with us. I Daniel really, Swift. really appreciate it. I, I appreciate getting the chance to do it. You know, as I told you earlier, I'm usually the one who is interviewing someone. Mm-hmm. So it was weird not being the one driving the conversation. <laughs> and I appreciate you doing it. Oh, well, you're more than welcome. <laughs> we'll have to have you back sometime. And um, and we'll we'll include in the show notes your your page, uh, your music page. So if somebody wants to, to get in there and and just you know become part of your community there they can do that uh as well and then we'll we'll come back again so thank you much i appreciate right, it peace and love well what'd you think of that it was a pretty interesting podcast wasn't it james is a pretty uh, pretty interesting guy and I'm, I'm really glad he he came and spent some time with us i'll have all the links to his uh his music in the show notes so if you go to the show notes on the captivate website which is uh, or i think you can actually see it in in itunes really pretty much anywhere uh that has the podcast um you you can you can check out his youtube channel you can check out his facebook page and then when he gets his new album out as you heard uh we'll give away uh some copies then so uh make sure you check it out and and, and give him give him some love uh that way and you know if you heard heard him on the podcast and you wanted to reach out i'm sure he would appreciate that you can do that on facebook that's a really good way to get a hold of him so uh, anyway, I, there were a couple things that I thought were interesting. I, I kind of summed it up in the podcast, but you know, just just to take a, a quick minute, realize that James found a way, even if he was doing it subconsciously, uh, just by being open to opportunities. And even when those opportunities didn't exist, he still took the time to foster what he was going after. Uh, you know, if you take a look, you know, when he he decided to go back to school and, and take some computer classes, but to take a writing class, because that was one of the things that he always really liked to do. You know, he said he wanted to be a, a, a newspaper reporter when he was a kid. And then he kind of made it happen even though it was a subconscious way, he went to school for writing because he liked to write. It was something he was passionate about and he followed that and it, it, it actually opened, there were opportunities that showed up because he was in that class, because he was taking the time to go and foster his love and passion of something. And then he was open to opportunities. And that is one of the keys to finding the things that you want to do in life. Make sure that you prepare for them. You know, I've heard it said before, and you've probably heard it said before too, that luck is where opportunity meets preparedness. So, So if you get prepared and then wait for the opportunity or look for the opportunity or make the opportunity, well, that's where we can get lucky. 
And as always, don't forget, you may be plain and you may be ordinary, but you're a dragon and you can do amazing things. And we just can't wait to hear your voice in this world. Mm-hmm.